Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aben Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Aben Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. Glad to be here. If you don't mind, give us an overview of Aben Resources. We've got three projects on the go, varying stages of development, but the Forest Kerr in northwestern British Columbia is our flagship property. It is the one with the big upside potential. We've got another project called the Justin Project in the Yukon. It is tied right on to Golden Predator. It's in a good neighborhood for high-grade discovery, intrusion-related type of deposits, which have some very high-grade veining effects, that sort of thing. It's not unlike the Golden Triangle. And then our third project is the Chico Project in Saskatchewan. And, you know, our intention is to get back up there this coming winter because it's better to drill in the flatlands of the prairies when things are frozen because you can get around easier. The lakes are frozen, that sort of thing. Do you have early drill results in the Golden Triangle of British Columbia? We do not have the results back yet. We've got the first batch in. Probably the first three holes are in there. We expect them to be back the beginning of August, but we are currently now on our seventh hole. The last news release we did had us on the fifth hole. So we're moving along pretty good. At the end of this week, the drill crew takes a week off because they've been in there for five weeks. Whatever the rules are, they got to go. That'll give us time to catch up with core splitting and logging and all the stuff the geologists need to do, plus some more what I call ground proofing, but it's more mapping and surveying so they can figure out if they want to move the rig to the next location, that sort of thing, and where to put the drill pads because the drills sit on these big six-by-six framed drill pads so that they don't slip down the mountainside, that sort of thing. So again, when can we expect to see the result from the assay lab? Well, the first batch would be, well, like I said, I think the first could be the first week of August, but I've been wrong before. But that's about the timing that it should be. The labs, because we started early, the labs aren't as busy as they were last year. When I say labs, the closest ones to us are the ones we use down in Terrace, which is if I drove in a straight line, it would still be an eight-hour drive. But that's just the nature of the beast. We're quite a ways north. We're just south of the Yukon border, um, right beside the Alaskan Panhandle. So it's, it's fairly remote. At least the highway's paved now. Well, that's really what matters. The infrastructure and the ability to get the gold out once it's time to do so, right? Well, this area, northwest quadrant of British Columbia, literally beside the Alaskan Panhandle, is very mountainous still rainforests and the precipitation rate in the winter is really high. They can still get up to 30 feet of snow. And in the old days when the discoveries were first made, for example, Eskate Creek and Snip Mine, there wasn't any infrastructure. It was strictly a fixed wing. They built an airstrip and they flew in the old DC-3s full of whatever they needed to build a camp. And today we now have a highway running straight through the region that heads up to the Yukon and then eventually over to Alaska. There's more than one airstrip now if you want to fly in, charter a plane, and get up there quick. There is a massive facility built by Alta Gas for run a river on the Iskit River, so that's still there. So there's access right into the, our southern part of our property. And then what also has happened, there's a road that goes right into the northern part of our property. You know, that property is 40 kilometers long, but that the Glor Creek Road that was built for the Glor Creek Mine cuts right through the northern part of our border, so our property.
40s. So it's way easier to work today than it was 30 years ago. What brought you to this particular property, this deal? Potential for high-grade discoveries, really simple. Everything that's been found up there is unique, very high-grade. Probably one of the only places on Earth that you can find this type of environment. Think of it as a collision of a volcanic chain of islands coming in off the Pacific, crashing into the North American plates. And you've got this incredibly mixed-up environment for a geologist's dream. High-grade because of the volcanogenics, the term they use, I call it volcanoes. The origins of it is volcanogenic, and a lot of the old discoveries are VMS systems, they're called, and also intrusion-related. There's a lot of plumbing there. It is unique in the world to this area. What's the plan going forward, then, for the next 12 months? Well, finish this season drilling. We're planning potentially up to 20 holes. We're probably at seven, I think, just finishing now. That'll take us through the end of September anyways, maybe a little longer than to get all the results back, and then plan for next year. So things will slow down. I have other projects in the company that can get us through the winter. We'll go back over to Saskatchewan and revisit that project through the winter because it's easier to drill, and it's another gold project just tied onto the south end of the Claude Resources, which Silver Standard or now called SSR, has bought, and they're drilling 40,000 meters of drilling to prove up more exploration upside to their existing deposits that they bought. They paid $337 million for the old mine and and the two deposits, CB and Santoy, were just south of them on the same structural features. So that's a good place to go. We can utilize their exploration model. We know what it is. The show you were just at, Ellis, I went to the lunch for SSR, and they do have an exploration model that they use, and it ties right into what we're looking at anyways because we've done enough work and that project has had enough old historic work done on it. We have a really good idea of where to go in and drill. That's interesting because in my world there's not a lot of talk about gold in Saskatchewan. It's usually potash or what have you there. Yeah, yeah. Well, the environment in the middle of the prairie, it's covered in sediment. You know, you come off of the Cambrian rocks and that sort of thing out of Ontario heading west and you'll drop into the prairies and it's like it was a huge massive lake bed at one time. So you don't get a lot of exposure. So historically there's not very many places you can go and drill because you've got good surface exposure of greenstone belts and that sort of thing. The rocks come up to surface. Well this area does and it's directly south of the Athabasca Basin which is a very large lake bed and that's where a lot of our uranium's coming out of the highest grade large production uranium mines in the world are right there just to the south where we are we've got the outcrop of it's not the precambrian rock that's over by hudson's bay but it's very similar to northern ontario where there are greenstone belts there is the right kind of geology and it's exposed so it's it's kind of like an island in the middle of the prairies and there's been a long history of exploration and gold production in that area Hmm, you learn something new every day. There you go. Yeah, you're not growing wheat there, that's for sure. Let's talk about the share structure. It shares outstanding is about 81 million. We're still in very good shape. Fully diluted, it's about 100 million. Most of that is options, and there is another pretty much one set of warrants that are to be exercised this year because they're in the money. I think you'll find, you know, if there's a spike in the share price while we're drilling and working up in northern British Columbia, that's what happened last year. All those warrants were taken down. We virtually brought in a million and a half dollars into the treasury with that. Our symbol is ABN on the Venture Exchange, and in the U.S. we are listed on the uh, OTCQB markets, so it's ABNAF. Tell us about the management team, Jim. Sure. Well, 
I kind of alluded to there being a lot of history up in this area of high-grade discoveries, and the uh, chairman of the company, Ron Nedelitsky, has fairly fabled history up there. In the old days, he was involved in the discovery of SNP and of Eskate Creek, and is very knowledgeable in this area, and he is up there. He's got his own company, but he's the chairman of this company as well. He has now got the SNP mine back from Barrick, and they're not finished. He's in there working away and going to depth. He's going deeper than it was initially at when Barrick finished there. Another individual on our board is Tim Termundi. He started his career there with Ron as a young man out of University of British Columbia School of Geology. And then we've got some really good advisors that came with the land assemblage. When I put it together, they came with the companies that were the underlying owners. And their history goes back 25 plus years. So you've got about 100 years worth of knowledge in this specific area. And I'm virtually the only one on the involved that's not a geologist, so I'm more of the capital markets side and corporate governance, that sort of thing is what I involve myself in. Tim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much, Alice. I've been speaking with James Pennant, the president and CEO of Avon Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com and click through to theirs, abenresources.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Don Mosier, VP of Corporate Development for Cypress Development Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CYP, and in the U.S. is CYDVF. Cypress Development is a company focused on developing their 100% held Clayton Valley Lithium Project in Nevada. Their flagship Deed and Glory Project is located immediately east of Albemarle's Silver Peak Mine, North America's only lithium brine operation. Exploration by Cypress has discovered an extensive deposit of lithium-bearing claystone adjacent to the brine field. Metallurgical tests have shown the claystone is weak acid leachable with lithium extractions over 80% in 4 to 8 hours. With mineralization tested by drilling over a 7-kilometer trend, the size of the deposit makes Clayton Valley a premier target that has the potential to impact the future of lithium production in North America. Don, welcome to the program. Great to have you here. Thank you. I very much appreciate you having me on. Don, before I get into the company, why is lithium considered a critical mineral now? Battery storage. It's really increased battery capacity with all the storage all the way from your cell phones and small devices like that all the way up to Tesla vehicles. You know, the bigger storage, you'll start to talk vanadium, that type of battery. But between cell phones and Tesla cars, lithium's critical. Now, you mentioned Tesla, of course, their home in the U.S. or one of their homes, their main home is in Nevada, and that's where your project is. Was that by design? You found the project there with perhaps the thought of someday uh, an association or an agreement with Tesla and others? No, we really didn't go into this idea with signing an MOU with Tesla or anything like that. Clayton Valley, which is where we are, was the original brine production project on a global basis. They've been producing there for 55 years, and we went in there with the idea catching a lithium cycle staking some ground looking for a brine deposit and almost by accident our geologists started to take some surface samples there and we realized that there was lithium in the clays so this is a claystone deposit currently there is no claystone production anywhere in the world all lithium is either produced out of brines or spodium 
means are hard rocks. But currently there's three very advanced clay stone deposits out there. There's a company called Bacanora, which is down in Sonora, Mexico with a clay stone. There's a Australian company called Global Geosciences on Rhyolite Ridge, which is about 25 miles from us. And then the old Chevron deposit, Kings Valley, which is now being labeled as Thacker Pass and owned by Lithium Americas. And each of those projects has had challenges presented in front of them with the higher lithium prices right now, which are running 16 to 18,000 a ton for LCE. A lot of these alternative methods of production are starting to make sense. That includes the hard rock because the brines to date are your cheapest production and they occur mostly in the Atacama Desert in Chile and some in Argentina. But you're seeing the hard rocks move forward as well. However, these clay stones are now starting to look attractive. There's new technologies and they really have size to them. That's one of the big attractions. What about the extraction with regard to clay stone? And are we not dealing with evaporation ponds so we don't have that potential environmental issue? That's correct. One of the issues with clay stones has been a component called hectorite. Now all these clays have different metallurgical signature to them. The first one that was really actively explored was the Chevron deposit, Kings Valley, which was secondarily owned by Western Lithium. They went in there and they spent somewhere between 40 and 60 million dollars trying to figure out how to economically extract lithium. And their big challenge, this hectorite, turns the ore into a refractory ore. So you literally have to take the clay, dig it up, heat it to a thousand degrees centigrade, so you turn it into a brick, and then you break the brick into pieces, and then you leach it with acid. Well, that's not really economic, is it? No. I mean, just the cost of heating it up to a thousand degrees, not even looking at the handling cloths and the bottleneck that you experience as you move through that process, deters everybody. What we're looking at right now, Lithium Americas, for example, has come back out and they said Thacker Pass is a part of Kings Valley that does not have a hectorite component, and they believe they can acid leach that. Global Geosciences and Rhyolite Ridge, again, they're talking a pure acid leach on that. So it's no different than a gold deposit or a copper oxide deposit that you have a heap leach on. Back in ore, on the other hand, still has to deal with a hectorite component and they're talking refractory, so it's going to be interesting to see the numbers. The real interesting thing about our project in Clayton Valley is we've never had a hectorite issue with it. Even the USGS reports going back decades say there's no hectorite there. So what we've found on our preliminary leach and bench tests is with a 10% sulfuric acid solution, we can get 80% of the lithium out in four hours, which is a much shorter turnaround than anybody else out there. So we strongly feel that this is an economic deposit. What's got me so excited about it is it's got size. Like right now, we've got over 600 million tons drilled out, but we can easily double that based on geology and topography. Topography-wise, this thing sits on surface, so it's like a boardroom table. There is zero strip ratio to it. It's flat. It runs for seven kilometers at surface. It's a kilometer and a half to two kilometers wide, so our mining costs are going to be less than 50 cents a ton. These other projects are talking seven to nine dollars a ton just to move the dirt and get it into the processing facility. We're in the best jurisdiction in the world. I mean, with Tesla there, with Donald Trump in power, and it's always been a mining-friendly community in Nevada. They've got some of the largest gold mines in the world. You couldn't do better than that. You've got all those critical elements going for you. The big critique on our deposit has been grade. Our grades are lower than everybody else. So what's critical and what's coming for us is a preliminary economic assessment. Like the drilling on this was very easy. I've never seen a mining project where you drill out six 600 million tons of ore with less than 2,000 meters of drilling. 
it's that consistent. I mean, it's 125 meters deep. It's probably deeper than that. We haven't bothered to drill any deeper and it's consistent all the way along the thing. So we're focusing on about 300 million tons of higher grade right in the core of the deposit that'll run somewhere between 1,000 and 1,100 ppm. When we put out the PEA, what we're gonna be able to do is now do a comparison to these other projects that are more advanced. They're all into either pre-feasibility or feasibility. So we'll be able to take Cyprus with its preliminary economic assessment. We'll be able to look at mining costs. We'll be able to look at acid consumption. We'll be able to look at the turnaround time. And at the bottom of it, we're going to have a cost of production for a ton of LCE. And we'll be able to compare those costs to everybody else. So the grades are irrelevant if you can keep your costs down to a point where they make sense. Potential mine life and what are your steps going forth during the next six months to 12 months? The mine life on what we're looking at right now, if we're doing 15 to 20,000 tons a day, we're looking at a mine life of 30 years plus. Our next step is to get the preliminary economic assessment out, continue to do metallurgical work, set up a pilot plant to start to demonstrate that we can actually run this system through the processing flow sheet and with that move it to feasibility and look to raise the financing, which I mean I can't really give you a solid number on it, but you know we're looking at something that's going to be mined in the same manner you'd mine a coal seam at surface. You're going to have a big bucket wheel, you're going to have conveyor belts, and you're going to move this into a vat leach situation where you move it through a series of vats. And at the end of the day, you're going to come out with a lithium product and maybe some other byproducts that will actually bring your costs down because you'll get some credits for them. Is that something Cypress is going to do or do you look for a JV or to be taken out someday? Currently, we're doing it all on our own. I think we need to get the PEA out. Right now, our market cap's about $20 million. The cheapest of the other three clay stones is a $200 million dollar market cap. So there is definitely a credibility gap, in my opinion, on it. When I talk to people, they point at grade. You're not going to be able to produce with that kind of grade. So the preliminary economic assessment is going to be critical for us to convince the markets that here's our costs and that grade will work in this environment. What is the share structure? You mentioned the market cap, but what are we talking about? Currently, we've got 60 million shares issued. We've got about 80 million shares fully diluted. The project has been the fastest developing mining project I've seen in 35 years at the cheapest cost. We've spent probably a million dollars on this project and we're already at the PEA stage. And that's taken us about 16 months to get from start to this point. I mean, I've seen and been involved in lots of mining projects that go 10, 15, 20 years. So this thing is moving at light speed. Let's talk about the management team because everybody knows people are the most important factor with regard to a mining company or any public company. Yeah, the uh, CEO of our company is Dr. Bill Willoughby. He's uh, a PhD mining engineer metallurgist, spent about 28 years with Tech Cominco. He's had some junior success after that. The president of the company is Don Houston. Don's been involved in the exploration business for 30 years. The rest of the team are all hired on a consultation basis. So we don't have a high G&A. We don't have a lot of full-time employees right now. Bill's been picking and choosing among associates that he's known over his 30 years in the business that he can work with. So different labs to do the bench tasks. He's consulting with different associates on the metallurgical side of it, and it's really saved us a considerable amount of money. Well, Don, it's always a pleasure to see you. We've known each other for about 20 years now. I'm glad to be working together. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. My pleasure, as always. I've been speaking with Don Mosier, VP of Corporate Development for Cypress Development Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CYP and in the U.S. as CYDVF. 
Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast or radio app. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corps is a mineral exploration company currently focused on its 100% free gold mountain project in Canada's Yukon. This road accessible property is located in the Dawson Range Gold Copper Belt, host to the Casino Copper Deposit, the Coffee Gold Deposit, and the Plaza Gold Prospect. Triumph Gold Corp has a leadership team with a collective history of exploration success as well as capital raising ability. John, welcome back to the program. It's always great to see you. It's great to be here with you. Now, I noticed you just completed a fairly significant financing and Gold Corp has upped their position. Let's talk about what's going on in the Yukon. Well, I think for, first and foremost, that's the most exciting thing is we started an 18,000 meter program after doing a 13,000 meter program last year. So we've increased it by about 25% and it's really just a follow-up from last year's exploration success. Well, if you don't mind me saying, I think the market is responding in a positive light to this news in the middle of a what's been a flat summer in the sector. I think part of that is the surprise of the financing. We didn't really go out and market it. We just announced it. And I think when people saw that it was primarily five investors, I think that opened up a lot of people's eyes. You went back to some of the investors that are involved in the company already, people you know clearly, and they decided to increase the size of their portfolio with the company. That's true. Of primary interest, we brought Xinxing Copper in out of China. They were the lead on the financing, and they took $2.5 million of that financing of the $5 million. And Gold Corp, who had 19.9, increased their position to uh, 19.999, as well as Gold 2000 and Palisades Capital. So I won't say it was simple. It took a little longer than expected, but the validation of the project is really what sold the financing. Well, you've always been discussing the validation of the project, and I know that the uh, Chinese have taken an interest, but that particular company. Can you say exactly why? The magnitude of the project. We have a fairly substantial low-grade resource for listeners that don't know the story. The project was pretty much dormant from 2012 up until last year. And last year, we started exploring again. It wasn't following up on old resources. It was coming up with new geological ideas. We hit on four successful ideas, nothing sexy with grade, but conceptually came up with something. And now this year's program is allowing us to vector in on of last year's success. And I think that's obviously what's creating a lot of interest in the project now. And Gold Corp is also increasing their profile in the Klondike. So in addition to how attractive your property looks to them and others, clearly, it's in the way. Yeah, they came to the Yukon in 2016 with the purchase of Kamenak for the coffee project where they paid $520 million. And they've been aggressively developing that project. They have publicly said this is going to be their next project. And the way it's geographically set up, they're 60 kilometers northwest of us. And the way they were looking at doing their infrastructure was taking everything past our property through the Klondike Highway and then come down. We're actually blessed with incredible infrastructure right off the Klondike Highway where we've got a government maintained road that goes not only to our property and right through our property. And there are so many benefits to that. It's not just the gateway to Western Copper's project, which is adjacent to the Copper project. It's really from an exploration and developments aspect. 
and for the, the you listeners out there, what that really equates to is a very inexpensive cost of exploration and development at this stage of the game. What can we expect to see during the next 12 months, in your opinion, knowing how fluid everything is? Well, we started drilling in April of this year. We should start coming out with our initial results from the early program. And I'd say we've got news that'll take us right through to Christmas just because of the magnitude of what we're drilling right now. John, I suspect we're going to hear from you sooner than later with regard to that news, correct? Uh, I think we're going to be coming out with news in another couple of weeks for sure uh, from the initial results. And then I would say later in the fall with some of these deeper targets that we're drilling, probably late September, October, I think we'll start seeing some of the results from our deeper program, which is obviously creating a lot of interest. Full disclosure, I am a shareholder of Triumph Gold Corp and Triumph Gold Corp is also a sponsor of this program. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ellison. I look forward to being back in a couple of weeks to give you guys all an update. I've been speaking with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and NMTLF in the U.S., New Age Metals Incorporated is a mineral exploration company focused on the discovery, exploration, and development of Canada's largest primary platinum group metals PGM deposit, the River Valley PGM project, located in the Sudbury region of Northern Ontario. The company also has a lithium division with five lithium projects, of which three are drill ready. The company's philosophy is to be a project generator, explorer, with the objective of optioning or joint venturing their projects with major and junior mining companies through to production. Harry, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us on again. According to your latest news release, you have engaged P&E mining consultants to complete a preliminary economic assessment, a PEA study, on your 100% owned River Valley Platinum Group Metals Project, Sudbury, Ontario. Let's hear about that. What's going on this summer, Harry? Well, couldn't be more excited. I mean, at this project, as you know, Ellis, for many, many years with a great team and a lot of people have get this project to where it is today. But when you get a project and build it to one of the largest deposits of its kind, we've spent combined different companies over the years, about $45 million. We came up with a really good 43-101 in the last two months, and now we can claim that we're one of the largest deposits of its kind in North America. And now we've hired an engineering company, and we're going to do the first economic study on it. So well into it. We just started about a week ago, and there's a lot of work to do, and it's going to take up to a year. And that's where we're at. You know, a lot of folks that run these companies, people unlike yourself, are just taking the summer and they're they're taking off and they're having a great time and doing whatever the heck they're doing while nothing goes on. But you and your crew and your team are relentless with regard to all the assets you have in Canada. Yes, I'm working everybody hard. I think you can see the lines in their faces right now, and I've probably got a few myself. Both our divisions, both our lithium division and our River Valley Platinum Group Metal Deposit are in high gear. The engineers are going to do a study that we call a preliminary economic study. For a lot of the American listeners, that name has replaced what used to be a scoping study. So where we are now is the preliminary economic assessment is the first study, then there is the pre-feasibility and then the feasibility study. So for us as a junior company, 
this study we're doing right now will allow us to go to a whole different breed of financiers. Once they know the general economics of the project, then we can go to a much bigger institution than we have now. We actually got a couple of good-sized institutions in our last financing we did about a month or so ago. But it'll also allow us to go to streaming companies who actually will finance us, to royalty companies, to high-net-worth mining financiers, for lack of a better word. And this study is all important, especially in the economic times we have for the junior mining companies right now. So having P&E is, I think, we had six or seven companies that bid on this thing that we interviewed extensively. I went to Toronto. They came and saw us. And then many more, once they saw we were doing the study, wanted to. But I wanted to keep it to about six or seven, and I want to thank all the companies that I had to say no to. But P&E are a group that have done over 300 of these studies. They're very familiar with the northern regions that we deal in, and we're not that far north, else you're going to get up to the property, hope, real soon. But you'll see that we're really almost in the southern part of the north where we have a, a major mining community to work from. Sudbury and the Sudbury Metallurgical Complex has two of the biggest companies in the world. It's been a mining district for 120 years. It has the best universities, the best engineering companies, the best of everything. So really, that, that's the business in mining of uh, Ontario and, and eastern Canada, basically. Uh, I have been there so i really don't know i've just been to toronto you'll excuse me it's sort of a uh, semi-industrial uh, area with mining concerns and uh, i understand that there's a uh, battery chemical plants uh, in eastern canada give our american audience an overview of what we're really looking at there and also if you don't mind discuss the importance of platinum group metals because i don't think the broader world as far as retail investors really have a grasp on that although it is a challenge resource globally that's right. Well, I'll start with that, and then we'll go to Sudbury. The platinum group metals are used mostly 80% of palladium, which is our primary metal. And again, for the listeners, we have palladium. Our second metal is platinum. Our third metal is gold. We have a lot of cobalt. We have a lot of copper and nickel. Then we have rhodium, which is another very important platinum group metal. All of these metals are on our site and they will all be what we call payable metals. However, the most important two are palladium and platinum. These metals are a store of value. When right now our poor gold has got knocked down because the economies are doing very well, I think, and then gold is knocked down. But when gold and silver take off, so do platinum palladium because they are a store of value. But palladium, 80% of it, and a lot of platinum, about 40% of it, are used in auto catalyst. These are in the tailpipe of your car, and they are basically green metals because these auto catalysts, kind of like the last afterburn of the toxic fumes that are going out in the atmosphere in the back of your car. Alice, about eight years ago, nine years ago, only 40% of the world's palladium was used in auto catalysts. Now it's 80, simply because almost every country in the world, like China, Brazil, India, have to have auto catalysts. And of course, the car production has gone way up. So that's some of the uses. But they are precious metals too. And they're hard to find. There are only two producers of palladium in North America as a primary producer, and that is the Stillwater Mining Complex in the United States, where a company called Sabanye bought them a couple of years ago, and they have actually two mines and a very, very good project in Stillwater, Montana. The other producer is in Canada, about a thousand kilometers away from where we are, but it actually has for 20 years shipped its concentrates from an open pit mining situation, they're now underground because they've hit a lot more high grade underground, and they're shipping those concentrates a thousand kilometers or about 600 and some miles to the Sudbury Mining Complex. Well, let's go to that. We're not 
in northern, northern Ontario. We're really in the fringe of northern Ontario, and we have a mining community, the Sudbury Mining Complex. Sudbury itself is about 120,000 people. It's recently had a real big boost. The two big companies that are there that have these facilities that we can ship our concentrates to, and again, we're only about 60-some road miles from there, about 100 kilometers. Each one of them have made announcements, and over the last couple of years, the announcements amount to 2.3 billion new dollars that are going into the Sudbury Metallurgical Complex to update it, to get deeper into their underground mines, and to build the kind of facilities that we get to use, and we don't have to spend that money. We're, again, only 62 miles down the road. And best universities, best engineering companies, we have everything there as a junior company. We don't have to build a $3 billion infrastructure or build a $2 billion smelter, I mean, which you could hardly ever get the permits to today. It's all right there. Now, I know you have several divisions. Because I've been covering the sector for a while, for a long time, and, and traveling and learning and paying attention, we've discussed this before. You don't talk about nickel much, but I know that there is some in the Sudbury area in Ontario. I know that you have it, and I know that's important because even though cobalt's profile will increase because of the demand for battery chemicals and minerals and metals, at the same time, the manufacturing companies that put these batteries together are attempting to mitigate the risk with regard to cobalt and diminish it. And they're doing that with nickel. So at some point in the future, will you develop the nickel assets that I know you've got? Yes, and that's what the uh, audience sometimes hard to explain. When you have eight payable metals, so our primary metal is palladium, our second is cousin platinum, our third is gold, nickel, copper, cobalt, rhodium, all kind of fight for the next place, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. In other words, when we mine one ton of rock, all of those elements will be payable. They will all be shipped in the same concentrates to Sudbury, and we will have the two big facilities, one of them, take those metals out and pay us. So when we mine a ton of rock, your listeners need to understand this. We're not just mining palladium and platinum. There is cobalt in it. There is gold in it. There is uh, nickel and copper. We will get those metals. The other thing I want to say is that Sudbury's primary metals are nickel first, copper, and the reason we can ship the concentrates there, Alice, is because their other metals that they bring out are platinum group metals and gold and silver. So they have the same suite of metals we have. It's just that what is more predominant for them is the nickel and the copper, but they have in many of these mines four and five grams of platinum group metals now down as deep as one to 3,000 meters. For your listeners, 1,000 meters is over 3,000 feet. They're down sometimes two and 3,000 meters, and they're still finding this kind of metal. And so all of that is there. And every time we ship something to town, we'll be getting payable metals from seven or eight metals. Thank you for that explanation. This program basically covers publicly traded companies in the mining and resource sector. I, I tend not to talk about movement in the market and stocks per se. I don't like to do that. I like to talk about the assets, the management team, the capitalization, all that with regard to a company. I'm an investor in New Age Metals. I'm in, and it's the type of company where I've purchased the stock, and I'm just going to look away for a while and let you do what you do. And really, for me, it's long. Yeah, I mean, this isn't something we're going to get to production the next year or two. Else. This is a longer-term story. Just the last week or two, I won't really mention the company, but I'll mention a scenario. The last American government in Alaska, these are friends of mine. We shared tickets at a hockey game in Vancouver for many years. They're great mining 
team. I won't mention their name. But the bottom line is the Obama administration turned down a major asset that they couldn't take to production in Alaska. They built out one of the largest deposits of its kind, and they turned it down. And now, this week, an announcement came out that the new administration says that thing can go to production. What's it going to do? It's going to create thousands of jobs, both directly and indirectly. It's in a mining state. It's in a mining area that's been mined forever. And we can mine today, and it's friendly. It doesn't ruin the environment. It, all of this stuff has to be taken into consideration. So this is going to happen in our project someday in the next couple of years, too. For example, the little community that we drive through, we named the project after River Valley. Alice, you have to see it, and you will see it this fall. There's only 300 people live there. Well, what do you think they want to have happen to the project that it actually goes behind their village for 16 kilometers and goes up about 10. They know that when that goes to production, even the real estate in that little town will double or triple. You can still buy houses there else for 50 and 100,000 Canadian dollars. 100,000 Canadian is 70 US, right? Now, that's the kind of things that happen. The city of Sudbury goes forward because we'll ship the concentrates there. There'll be hundreds of people work different shifts that are somewhat indirectly or directly involved. We'll buy fuel. Right now we're doing a lot of assaying. We've got a drill project going to start here in the next month or so. So the drilling company, we're getting three or four quotes right now. The assay company's already doing a bunch of surface assays. We've done a big geophysical study that really has pinpointed some key new targets in and around the area we've already discovered. What your listeners need to understand is we're trying to build a series of open pits that are spread out for 16 kilometers. That's how much land we own as a small little company, and we own 100% of it. But more importantly, on top of the land is over $45 million spent, and many third-party engineering reports that state we have a tremendous amount of platinum group metals and base metals and everything on our property. This new study we're doing is going to bring that to its first economic overview and to be able to allow us to take this project to some big financiers and go to the next level. And that next level really is never going to include, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will, pilot plants or anything like that. You don't have to do that. So really the capitalization for this is a lot less than other polymetallic companies might be, but yet the return on the investment may be uh, quite significant. It could well be. I mean, right now there's a study going on in Kentucky. Believe it or not, now we're giving the American economy a bit of a boost because we sent a small sample of just a, you know, a few kilos down to a company. And what they do is digital sorting. Well, what does that mean? They have today, and the technology changes so drastically fast, as you know, Alice, they have the ability to take the rock we have and run it down a conveyor belt, and a digital system tells you whether that is a certain weight and a certain size and a certain whatever, and then we'll let you deflect that stuff off into a different pile and actually reduce the amount of rock that we have to send 60-some miles into Sudbury. And that's going on as we speak. And that could change everything, because can you imagine if you don't have to ship say a thousand tons, but you could use that system and deflect it down to say 500 tons on a daily, weekly uh, basis. It'll be more than that, but just to give you an example. The other thing we're looking at, the metallurgical process has changed drastically. What if we could just get five more percent recovery on the huge resource that we have in place from the last NA43-101? So all of this is being considered and it is part of this new study we're doing right now. 
Well, as we like to say down here, this is not your first rodeo. You've done this before. You know what to look for. You know what mistakes potentially can be made, and you're doing your very best to make sure that they don't happen. That's right, and now we have some top engineering help, and that really excites me because now, for example, two weeks ago we met with the engineers. We have a weekly talk now. This preliminary economic study is signed, sealed, and the down payment is on it, and this engineering company is, is working towards Some of the things they're going to do in this PAA is create a mine plan, a mine schedule. They're going to put all the capital cost estimates in there. They're going to look at uh, operating costs. Uh, They're going to incorporate it all into a financial model to provide total cash flow. They're going to look at after-tax net present value. They're also going to look at uh, coming up with an after-tax internal rate of return, an IRR. I mean, this is all building towards getting this big project off its feet. And I think it'll allow us, too, to go to some of the big companies that are already kind of sniffing around. They're they're looking at what we're doing. They're watching the announcements we're putting out. They do so because they're on our list. You know, we talk to them. We try to get them to come up and visit the sites. In Sudbury, it would be perfect to have a partner because there's two big companies right there already. And oddly enough, if they're not our partner, they're going to take our concentrates, one of them, or maybe we'd have a combination of both of them. They could even finance us. These are multi-billion dollar market cap companies, and now they're spending $2.3 billion. They've already spent about a billion three of it, but a big announcement here just a few weeks ago, Ellis. Imagine a town with 120,000 people, and somebody says we're going to spend $2.3 billion in it. That kind of gets everybody excited, right? It gets everybody working again. Well, Harry, uh, I learn something every time I speak with you. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I look forward to an update whenever you have something to talk about, which I'm sure will be very soon. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Well, thanks a lot. And, of course, we'd love to tell everyone about what we're doing on our lithium division maybe the next time we talk because it's flat out busy, too, and lots of good things are happening there. I've been speaking with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and NMTLF in the U.S., For more information, go to the company's website, newhmetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation now with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades in the U.S. as K-O-O-Y-F and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay Silver is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major silver projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra silver projects in Sonora, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alice. Good to be here. 
What's going on with La Cigara? Lots of stuff. We've been drilling this year. Very successful program so far in that we've opened up the strike potential of the deposit both to the north and to the south, both directions. So it's wide open in both directions, and so we see very good probability for expanding the size of that resource, particularly to the north. Wide space holes have hit consistent silver mineralization for over a thousand meters beyond the resource envelope. So you can see a lot of ounce potential there. To the south end, we've stepped out not as aggressively, but a very good step out 100 meters outside of the resource envelope and hit a real nice interval in uh, hole 51 there, grading over 100 gram per ton silver in a fairly shallow intercept. So really good. The geophysics in that direction indicates that maybe that structure is continuing for another 2,000 meters in that direction. Needs to be tested with the drilling. The bottom line is that it opens up a lot of upside and ounce growth there. So quite happy with those results. Now you've got a strategy of acquiring properties during the bottom of market or during downturns and that's pretty much worked for you, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I always take these down markets as opportunity to look for good assets. I mean, and that's how we picked up La Cigarra. We amalgamated with North Air Silver in 2016. It was a great opportunity to pick up 52 million ounces of measured indicated and another 11 million ounces inferred at a cost about one-fifth of the finding cost of silver. So we purchased that at a very low price, a very opportune time. Property's got lots upside. Personally, I've done this before. We bought the Mulatto's deposit from Placer Dome in the year 2000. Bottom, very bottom of the gold market with a shell company called National Gold. We brought in a partner, formed Alamos Gold in uh, 2003. And then that company at that time was a $35 million market cap. When I left the board in 2012, it was over a billion dollars. So that was on the back of that strategy. Buy it in the bottom of these bad markets. Look for the best assets you can. You can get them for really good prices sometimes. And then you turn those assets into very valuable assets as the markets turn. This is sort of a very exciting time for contrarians overall, isn't it? It is because these opportunities are out there. And we just recently acquired a new property called Copolito from some private owners in Mexico. Very rare opportunity in that it's a big vein system. It's an area of about three kilometers by five kilometers. There's numerous veins there, at least six principal veins that we see so far. Classic vein system, everything that we sampled so far is grading some kind of silver with a gold credit, so very good chances of having a discovery on this property and what's remarkable about it is it's never been drilled. Project has the scope of size to be something of pretty big significance. It's also the type of mineral system where you can find these real bonanza grades. The same kind of system like Silvercrest is working on or a Minorum is working on where you can lay into these big holes with real super high grade and they become real company changing events. So you have a good feeling about that. You, Of course, we can't predict the future, but you wouldn't be involved in this property if you just didn't see it somewhere with all the years of experience that you have. That's correct. Like It was very rare that you, to see a project like this that hasn't been drilled and the opportunity that it presents is very compelling. And in this sort of bottom of this market, we got it at a quite a 
reasonable price. We're paying over four years in an option agreement. You know, in better markets, there's a lot more competition for these things, number one. Number two, the price is a lot higher, and so you, you, the opportunity for finding them is a lot lower. You, you build these companies really in, in the bottom of the markets where companies really get built. I've been covering Silvercrest on and off. I remember two years ago, before they had discovered the Bonanza grades that they found their stock was at about 15 cents and anomaly happened. I mean, it's understandable with the grades and the work they've been doing in their team, but it went up to about three bucks and then down around two dollars U.S. I think it's up to three again now. And it really, a system like that does make a huge difference. Let's talk about the share structure because people want to know, new listeners want to know for Kootenay. So the share structure, we've 195 million shares issued and outstanding the last financing. We've got just under about $3 million in the treasury right now, so we're in a pretty good position to keep moving these assets forward. Our daily uh, trading volume in the last three months here has been over about 200,000 shares. That's the structure. What are you trading at about now? Because uh, I'm not real good on the math with regard yeah, to capitalization. We are trading at a 52-week low, so very good entry point here. We're trading at about 15 cents today, and the 52-week uh, low and high has been 31 cents and 14. That's about 11 cents U.S. for members of our audience that are American. Very, very good potential entry point. I certainly think so. So tell us about your relationship with Pan American Silver. Pan American Silver took on over two years ago now, in 2016, the promontorio property from us. We've made two discoveries in promontorio, the original discovery called promontorio, and then we made another one in 2015 called La Negra, which got Pan American interested, very interested, because real nice grades in La Negra, potential for open pit style mining there. That got Pan American excited. Now they've entered into a deal with us where they would carry us to production. We get a carried 25% interest if it goes all the way. Four years to do that in, there were they spend eight million US in the ground and then another eight million in payments to us, after which they have earned seventy-five percent. After that they provide hundred percent of the capital all the way to production and we would have to pay our share of that from our part of the cash flow after the fact. So they're entering the third year of that agreement, so we'll see where that goes now. So what's the exit strategy not only for the company but for investors potentially? We're really good at finding stuff and making discoveries. We're explorationists and we're not miners. So most likely what's going to happen is that we'll get these assets and advance to the point where a mining company is going to want to buy the, buy the assets or buy the whole company from us. So that is the most likely course of exit for us. Of course, you're here at the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium. Sprott's an investor in your company as well. Yeah, that's right. That's why we're here. Sprott is invested a couple of ways through the wealth management arm and also through the retail arm of Kootenai. He participated in the last brokered financing we did in 2016. We had one more financing here more recently that was non-brokered, of course. Jim, it's always a pleasure to see you in person. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Well, thank you, Ellis. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. and K-T-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the president and chief executive officer of Sky Harbor Resource, trading as S-Y-H on the TSX Venture Exchange, 
and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts a high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of the company. Yeah, so Sky Harbor Resources is a high-grade uranium exploration and early-stage development company. We've spent the last five years acquiring projects in the prolific Athabasca Basin, northern Saskatchewan. For those that aren't familiar with the basin, it's the highest-grade depository of uranium in the world. It's ranked the number two mining jurisdiction in the world by the Fraser Institute. We set out five years ago to build an asset portfolio that we could acquire in a depressed uranium market at very attractive valuations. We've been able to do that. We've vended in five properties now, about half a million acres of ground. We have high-grade uranium on several of them. They're all drill-ready. Our flagship project is called the Moore Uranium Project. It's right in the thick of things on the eastern side of the Athabasca Basin, right on that main mine trend. It's had a lot of historical exploration, over 40 million in drilling, geophysics, work that dates back many decades. So it's a well-known property. We are going in there with a bit of a different look with the exploration. Now, one of the big things we're going to be testing in this upcoming drill program starting in August is looking a little bit deeper under what's called the unconformity in the basement rocks. And I won't get too technical, but a lot of the recent high-grade discoveries like NextGen, like Fission, the Griffin deposit, that's Denison's, have been found in what's called the underlying basement rocks. And so this property has had a lot of drilling, but not into the basement rocks. So we're going to be looking there in this next program, which is a key catalyst for us coming up. Outside of that flagship and the focus for us at Moore. We have four other properties and Sky Harbor is unique in that we're a discovery driven company. We offer investors exposure to high grade discovery in the Athabasca Basin through our drilling at Moore, but we also act as a prospect generator. We have a big property package. We've consummated two deals thus far on these other properties, one with a strategic partner in Orono, which used to be called Areva. It's France's largest uranium mining company. They're spending up to $8 million to earn 70% on a project called Preston. This is over on the west side by Fission and NextGen. And then we did a deal with another company called Azincourt, similar deal and earning for 70%. They fund the exploration over the next few years. We get some cash and stock payments as well. So it's a great complement to our main focus on our flagship. It allows these other projects to be advanced, other companies funding that exploration. We benefit from the news flow. And if they find anything, we retain a minority interest and we'll see upside from that as well. Do you get sort of an indefinite royalty? Yeah, we will retain a minority interest and so if they go out and they make a big discovery, for example, on those projects, we'll have the remaining minority interest that, you know, at some point maybe we can look to sell, but we'll see, a, needless to say, a re-rating on the stock. 15% of a big discovery in the Athabasca Basin is worth a lot of money. Tell us about your association with Denison. Yeah, so Denison's a strategic partner. We did a deal with them about two years ago, actually acquired our flagship project more from them. They're our largest shareholder 
shareholder. They own about 10% of the company. David Cates, who's the president and CEO of Denison and UPC, is a director of Sky Harbor. So very close working relationship with Denison Mines. They're a New York listed and TSX listed company, and they're developing, they're focused on developing the Wheeler project. Now, as we all know, those of us who follow the sector and those of us who've invested in uranium companies in the past and done very well, and then after the downturn, after Fukushima have done poorly, the price of production with regard to uranium, it's not economic for a lot of companies. And you feel, of course, you've got high-grade uranium. You feel that's going to turn around, and, and let's hear why. Absolutely. I mean, look, when we started this company a few years back, we knew that we were not going to have a booming uranium market. That was actually what drew us into this. We're contrarians. We wanted to go out there and take advantage of a depressed market, acquire these projects on the cheap, assemble one of the best, I think, technical exploration teams out there. My head geologist is a gentleman named Rick Kazmersky. He's director of the company. Been looking for uranium in the basin for over 40 years. He was the exploration manager at Cameco for many years and built and sold a company called JNR. So him and I have teamed up and we brought on some, some other great technical people to help find that next big deposit in the basin. We've been able to do that because the market has been tough, right? And so we've done that. We're out there now exploring. With regards to the price of uranium, I really do see the next couple of years being very, very important for the commodity. Watching this, I think we've seen the reversal. I think we're now in the early, early days of a recovery. I think this next two to three years, we're going to see that transition into a full-on bull market. The biggest things to look at right now, you look at the supply-demand fundamentals, start on the demand side, demand continues to grow. We have a lot of new reactors under construction in the developing world, in China, in India, in parts of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia sinking tens of billions of dollars into their nuclear fleet coming online. The Japanese restarts have accelerated. A year and a half ago, we only had three reactors that had restarted since Fukushima. We now have nine. So we're seeing them come back online. You have over 450 operating reactors globally. That's a lot of uranium consumed on an annual basis. In 2018, we'll see about 190 million pounds of uranium consumed. When we look on the supply side, we're only now producing in 2018 135 million pounds of uranium. There's a massive, massive supply deficit, almost a third of the market. There's been major production cuts made by the two largest producers. Cameco shut down the world's largest and richest uranium mine called MacArthur. I see that continuing. Then we have Kazataprom. Kazataprom effectively controls over 40% of global production. Kazakhstan's the world's largest producer of uranium. They operate the mines in Kazakhstan. Well, they've announced several cuts over the last year and a half. So here you have the two largest producers that account for well over 50-55% of global production that are basically driving. They're going to force this price higher. They need their mines to be economic. Kazataprom is planning an IPO. They're not going to IPO when the price of uranium at $23 a pound, hardly any mine makes money, including their low-cost mines, ISR mines. So they need to see a higher price. They've made the cuts. We're now seeing those supply cuts work their way into the market. We've seen a little bit of momentum build in the spot market, but just in the last three months, I'll note this, and this is, I think, the most topical point to talk about. We've seen new funds, in particular, one out of London called Yellow Cake, which has raised $200 million to go and buy 
physical uranium from Kazakhstan. 8.1 million pounds. They've struck a deal with the Kazakhs. That's 8.1 million pounds that will not be in the market, in the spot market. That's a significant amount. That's well over 20% of the spot market. We also know producers like Cameco are going to have to start buying in the spot market. Cameco in particular is going to have to buy a lot of uranium in the spot market over the next 12 months to meet their contracts that they have to sell into because they shut down MacArthur. That is a massive amount of new buying coming into a relatively e-liquid spot market. I think this will drive prices much higher in a very short period of time. Well, that's the intention. You've actually answered all the questions I had for you with a combination of Cameco and others cutting back intentionally to drive the price. And then the sporting going on by Yellowcake also intentionally to drive the price and control the market. It's actually going to work. It's sort of like a supercharged uranium energy OPEC. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, you know, if you look at it, it's a great comparison, right? You look at OPEC and how much oil they produce. Well, you think about uranium. Uranium is a niche market. Two producers in Kazataprom and Cameco control the majority of production globally. And these two companies are obviously committed to seeing a much higher price. They have the lowest cost producing mines and those mines are not making money at the current spot price. We're really not going to see a glut of production at any point, are we? Do you envision that? No, I mean, look, we have had, the reason we've seen the price decline as much as it has pre-Fukushima $70 uranium down to less than 20 back in November of 2016. The reason we saw that was because we did have a lot of secondary supply that was coming into the market, right? So absolutely, but we are now seeing a transition out of that. We're seeing a lot of the secondary supply. We're seeing secondary supplies waning, but we're now seeing this new demand coming online, right? In places like China, we're seeing the Japanese restarts and we're seeing a lot of supply taken out of the spot market just in the last few months with yellow cake. And then when Cameco starts buying in the spot market, that's a lot of buying pressure that comes into, again, a relatively thin market. Most uranium is traded through these long-term contracts and that's another important point when you look at the contracting cycle here a lot of these contracts these long-term contracts that mining companies sign with nuclear utilities a lot of them are expiring in the next five or six years over two-thirds of them expire by 2025 so that means that the utilities companies have to come back and have to start negotiating at least with the mining companies on these long-term contracts no mining company is going to enter into a five or ten year long-term contract at the current spot price is just not going to happen. So you're going to have to see them willing to buy and enter into these contracts at higher prices, which will be positive for the price of uranium, which would be positive for any equity investor in a uranium mining company. How is Sky Harbor positioned to leverage all the news that we've just discussed? And why don't you give our audience an idea of why they should consider looking at Sky Harbor as a potential investment to add to their portfolio right now, and especially uranium. I think you've already spoken the case for uranium, but why Sky Harbor? Sure. No, absolutely. It's a great question. I, you know, look, there aren't many uranium companies left. It's real simple. If you're looking at investing in gold, copper, oil, whatever the metal, whatever the commodity may be, there's a lot of different ways you can do it now, right? There's ETFs out there. There's certain investment products that you can go into, funds that you can go into, mining companies. There's and lots of them. There's lots of ways you can get exposure to these commodities. Uranium, that is not the case. There aren't a whole bunch of ETFs. There aren't a whole bunch of funds, right? You can't buy physical uranium, needless to say. You can buy bars of gold. You can't buy drums of yellow cake, right? Unless you're a big fund and you can store it. And there's very few out there. You need hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. So that puts Sky Harbor in a unique position as one of the few surviving junior uranium companies. There aren't many of us left. If you look globally, there's less than back in 2006, 2007, 
Management. There are over 500 publicly traded uranium companies. There's now less than 40. And if you look at the combined market cap or valuations of these companies, it's less than 15, $15 $15.15 billion. So a little bit of cap, and that includes Cameco at about $6 billion and NextGen at a billion. So if you see a little bit of investment capital come back into this space, there's a lot of torque, there's a lot of leverage there. Now, Sky Harbor, as a junior exploration, early stage development company, offers even more leverage and more torque on that uranium price moving up. It's a company you have to look at from the angle that, yes, it's one of the few ways to get investment exposure to uranium, leveraged investment exposure to uranium. But specifically for the company, we are a high-grade exploration story. So very similar to what you saw in the early days, next-gen, a fission of Hathor. Hathor was eventually acquired by Rio Tinto for $650 million, right? We are very much a discovery-driven company. We're out there looking for that next big high-grade deposit. We think it's there at more. That's why we're drilling on the project. Lots of news flow coming out on that project. But we also have prospect generator model bringing in other companies to help fund exploration and drilling at other projects. We have multiple irons in the fire, a lot of catalysts, a lot of news flow coming from that. So the company's specific reasons are sound. And I think with a combination of a rising uranium market and exploration success, I think we're in good shape here over the coming years. You mentioned Hathar getting taken out. And I remember also a company called Mega years ago that Mm -hmm. did very well. If you're a project generator, you're not going to necessarily be taken out per se, are you? What's the scenario? Well, again, first and foremost, we are an exploration company, right? Our focus is at more. What prospect generation, we decided a couple years ago because we had a big property package in the Athabasca Basin. A lot of them were simply collecting dust. So what we did, we sat down, we said, you know what? We got to find a way to monetize these projects. We can't just let them sit there and do nothing. And so we really then started to key in on, okay, let's bring in some strategic partners like Orono out of France, as in court, we're working on it. We're in negotiations on a few of the other projects as well. And let's complement our main strategy, which is high-grade discovery and exploration at our flagship. Let's complement that with prospect generation to monetize and bring in partners on these other projects. Let's talk about the share structure. That's what everybody wants to mm-hmm. know right now. Yeah, so it's 55 million shares issued and outstanding. It's very well structured. I'll note the larger shareholders, management and insiders, we own just under 18%. We got a lot of skin in the game. At the end of the day, we are looking to build a company that would be something that could be acquired by a larger company. We did this, Jim Pettit, who's the chairman of the company. Him and I ran a company called Bayfield Ventures. Previously, we sold that to New Gold. So we're very much, after making a high-grade discovery, so we're very much in that mindset here. We have a few institutional investors that have come in uh, in the last couple of years. KS Investment out of Shenzhen, OTP Bank in Hungary. There's a handful of funds in the U.S. and in Canada as well that own a few percent of the company. Marin Katuza in the KCR fund, he's been a cornerstone investor. The fund's been a cornerstone investor from day one. So it's got a good shareholder base. The institutional side of that has been growing recently. Recently. It's still a relatively small company. We're talking $22, $23 million market cap. So it's still a big retail following, but we're seeing more institutional interest coming in to the uranium space. What is the share price? The share price right now is about 40 cents Canadian, about 31, 32 cents US in trades under the symbol SYH on the TSX Venture. And we have an OTCQB listing, uh, SYHBF. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. 
High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me now for a conversation with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading under the symbol NHVCF in the U.S., and NEE on the TSX Venture Exchange. Northern Vertex is the newest gold producer in the United States, and it's focused on low-cost gold and silver production and its 100% owned Moss Mine, located in northwest Arizona. The Moss Mine is an open-pit, heap-leach gold-silver mine, which is expected to produce an average of over 50,000 gold-equivalent ounces annually over the first four years of a 10-year mine life. The company's management is comprised of a seasoned team with strong experience across all all areas of operations, mine development, exploration, acquisitions, and financing of mining projects, and shares the intention to build a mid-tier gold producer. And welcome back to the program. Nice to see you again. I've been to the Moss Mine Project in Arizona about a year and a half ago. I was amazed by what your team is doing. You were about ready to go into production. You're in production now. Let's talk about that. Well, a lot has uh, happened over the last year and a half. We were successful at attracting uh, Sprott Lending for 20 million U.S., uh, Greenstone for 26 million U.S., so all up, this project's had over 85 million U.S. invested in it, and that has led to the construction and completion of our mine site that's located just an hour and a half south of Las Vegas in northwest Arizona. Excellent location. Uh, we've gone on to build an operating team of close to 90 men and women on site, and they're actively working, crushing ore, blasting, and pouring gold on a weekly basis. So we're pretty excited about the developments. As it continues to develop, what do you see happening over the next six months or so? Well, we're in that process right now where we've completed construction. We're going through the commissioning period, and that is a ramping up of your gold pouring activities until you hit that commercial production. And that's sort of a steady state. You declare commercial production, and then you start to set guidance. So we're within 30 to 90 days of commercial production. We're very optimistic at the development underway, and it's uh, starting to attract a lot of attention. It's the latest U.S. gold-producing mine to come on stream. So that is drawing attention. It's a historic area. There's great infrastructure there. You were responsible for assisting locally that infrastructure to be enhanced, as I recall, with electricity, what have you. What do you see as far as a potential mine life for this project? I imagine it's quite extensive. Well, we initially had a feasibility study that called for five years. We subsequently published a PEA, a preliminary economic analysis, that extended the mine life to 10 years. We were looking at an average production of 45,000 ounces approximately per year. Uh, we're optimistic that we're going to increase that in the first three to four years and exceed our expectations of the previous reports. Development is going well, and as I said, we're the latest gold mine to be producing in the U.S., so we are very optimistic about our future. I met your person in charge of community relations over there, and that's extremely important anywhere in the world, but especially in Arizona. Well, we've done a lot of activities on earning our social license, and I think that's evident with our various public meetings that have been held through the permitting 
planning process uh, to allow us to begin production. We've had a very supportive city and county level support as well as state and federal level. So this is something that uh, can't be understated nowadays is earning your social license. And we've created geoscience programs in local high schools. We've created a heritage center in the town center that acts as an information center. So there's been a lot of activities underway to gain that support and trust of the community. You know, in the U.S., many people who are not in the sector like we are don't understand environmental impact when it comes to mining. It's very important. You're a Canadian-based company with a business in the U.S., in Arizona, and above anything, Canada is known for environmental interest and minimal impact on the terrain. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Well, just to back up a little bit, I like to think of ourselves as a company that is focused in the U.S., is active in Northwest Arizona, and has a workforce of approximately 90 people on site. We're generating economic activity that spreads out throughout the community and the state, and we're offering jobs which are very secure and high-paying relative to the communities. So that's something that we're proud of. When you stand at the top of that hill and overlook the mining site and see the individuals that are coming to work on on a daily basis and are able to live with their families and travel to the site just 20 minutes from the town of Bullhead City, it's quite rewarding. When you look at the price of gold and you look at the equities right now, there's a huge gap between the price of gold and the equities. And of course, we have countries like China and Russia that are actually hoarding gold. Other entities in the world's not really reflecting well in the equities market, but that will eventually change someday. Do you believe that? I do believe that. And if you look at our website and look at our presentation, uh, northernveritex.com, you'll see a presentation that has a few slides that are representative of the resource sector. And what it shows is a resource sector that had a peak in equities dating back to 2011. It pulled back all the way to 2016. It had a little bit of an uptick and then it's gone sideways. So we're in that sort of cyclical business and we feel that we're near the later stage of that down cycle. So we believe that it offers a lot of upside to potential investors and individuals interested in looking at America's latest gold producing mine. So we're optimistic about the future for the precious metal sector. Well, Ken, it's always a pleasure to see you uh, here in uh, Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Ellis, thank you very much. And I'm excited to get back to the Moss property in Northwest Arizona and see some more gold poured this week. And me as well. Thank you again. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading under the symbol NHVCF in the U.S. and NEE on the TSX Venture Exchange. Continue your research by going to their website, northernvertex.com, or find their logo on our website and click through, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Gary Cope, the president and director of Barcelay Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Barcelay is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive gold, silver, and copper exploration project on renowned mineral trends in Sweden. The management team of this company is widely recognized for the identification of La Preciosa Silver Gold Deposit in Durango, Mexico for Orco Silver. Gary, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Elf. Let's give our audience an overview of Barcelay. Well, the company is joint venture with uh, Agnico Eagle in northern Sweden. Uh, 55 Agnico Eagle, 45% Barcelay. And uh, Agnico Eagle is the operator and a very vigorous drill program going on for the last two and a half years and are building a very large gold resource in a very safe jurisdiction. And as I understand it, there's virtually no cash outlay by the company until pre-feasibility is completed, correct? 
That's absolutely correct. We are covered until Agnico Eagle delivers pre-feasibility. Of course, I'm on your mailing list, as many of our listeners are, and I receive fantastic news about Barslay Project Drill Hole AVA 18003. Fairly high-grade gold discovered so far. Yeah, that's one of the better holes to date, and we're very pleased. It was uh, 9 meters of 35 grams and not too deep, only uh, about 150 to 200 meters below surface. And again, up in the northern part of the trend, and we also have some really good results happening on the far south. So the trend is getting bigger. It's already, depending on which results you use, it's already between 6 and 8 kilometers long. When do you think we can see a new resource estimate? Agnico Eagle will come out with their uh, internal resource every February, once a year. What can we expect to see during the next year? I'm sure you'll see another big increase in the resource. Agnico Eagle is very conservative on their cutoff grade. They're looking to try and put a multi-million ounce resource that almost three grams together, and it is coming together. So I think you're going to see another increase. We were 1.66 million at the last one. I think you'll see it well over two. Additionally, Sweden is a fantastic jurisdiction. Many people, at least in North America, are not familiar with the infrastructure set up in Northern Europe. Well, that's really true. I mean, people's first response we always get is that, oh, Sweden would be an environmental nightmare to try and get a mining permit. Well, that's not true. In Northern Sweden is mining-friendly territory. There's been a huge mining history there. Boliden, Lundin got their starts there. There's operating mines very close to us already that, that will be operating on the same basis as we will be. Incredible infrastructure. If you think about how far north it is, it would be the equivalent of being in the Yukon or none of it where we are in Canada where there's virtually no infrastructure. There you can drive a car right to the deposit down a beautiful highway. There's rail through the project. There's three or four different major power lines that go right through the middle of the project. Infrastructure is very good. Power is cheap. Labor is very efficient and available and water everywhere. So you've got all the basics you need for a very successful mine and the productivity in Sweden is as good as anywhere in the world. You seldom have to go to the markets to raise capital for this particular company. That's one of the beautiful things about the partnership with Agnico Eagle. Well, we've never gone to the market. I mean, since we spun Barclay out of Oryx, we have never gone to the market for any financing. In fact, we have more money in the till due to warrant exercises and, and option exercises than we did at the start. So we don't foresee having to go to the market ahead of pre-feasibility. And what's that share structure look like? Barclay's got about 130 million fully diluted out, and it won't grow much more. There's a few more options out there, but there's certainly no more warrants. All the warrants have been exercised, so there's no warrant overhang, and we would anticipate there wouldn't be much of a growth in any shares from now until the company's taken out, which oh. is the likely outcome. Anything else, Gary? Just anticipate more and more good news, and at some point, Agnico is probably going to make a move. I've been speaking with Gary Cope, President and Director of Barcelay Mineral, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silvercorp, trading as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. The company owns 100% of the Dolly Varden Mines historic silver property. The current favorable price of silver has renewed investor interest in this most historic of the silver mines in northwestern British Columbia in Canada. The property is best considered an advanced exploration stage play with well-understood targets and I am a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver Corp. Ben, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back here, Ellis. Now, I understand that last month, the diamond drilling commenced at Dolly Varden. How's it going? 
It's going well. Dolly Varden Silver, we moved the gear in on the 16th of May and the count construction. The drillers moved up there at the beginning of June and for the first drill rig. And the second drill rig arrived on the 16th of June. So the second team also moved in for that drill rig. So we have two rigs turning as we speak here today. Now, you were instrumental bringing Orco Silver to fruition years ago to a point where it could be taken out. You made shareholders, including myself, a good deal of money. What's the plan for Dolly Varden? Well, the plan that we normally do within our group, within the Belacara group of companies, is to take a project and add value to it, keeping in mind what the major companies require for ore deposits. So we look at the project and say, can we find a resource that is big enough to interest the producing companies? And that's our expertise is to add value to a project. And you don't have any real doubt that this is going to happen? I don't have any doubt that this is a great project to work on. We're getting good results from last year's program. We are just at the stage where the assays will start to come in on this year's program. You have to be aware that when you start a drill hole, that you have to physically drill it, and then it gets logged, and it gets measured, and it gets marked for sampling, and then it is cut in half, and those get bagged, and those go to the assay lab. So there's a process that has to go through before the assays are back on my desk for interpretation. I'm just curious, are the assay labs backed up like they were last year or the year before, or have things even out a bit? I think that early in the season, you have a shorter turnaround time. Later in the season, when a lot of the projects that are up in the Golden Triangle, that rich area of northwestern British Columbia, a lot of the programs start to wind up towards September, October, and they ship a lot of samples out at that time to the labs. So your delays happen more later in the season than they happen in the early part of the season. You mentioned the Golden Triangle, an extremely prolific area of the world, actually, for mining in British Columbia. And this was a choice of the Belcara Group to select this particular project, reinvigorate it, and prove out the resource. Well, our team had looked at the project in the past, and we had not reached a deal several years ago. But it was in late 2016 that the major ownership blocks of Dolly Varden Silver Corporation asked us as a management team whether we would take over managing the project. So the project was actually brought to us as a management team in recognition that we have made the shareholders money in the past. And hopefully that's what we're going to do again at Dolly Varden. What else is going on, Ben? We do have the meetings for the British Columbia Regional Mining Alliance. And I'd just like to point out that community relations is an important part of any project. And the Regional Mining Alliance is a collection of the First Nations in the area, the Nishka and the Toltan First Nations, the provincial government, the Association for Mineral Exploration in British Columbia, that's more of a lobbying group, and several of the active junior mining companies in the area. So the different groups, the industry, the government, and the First Nations, Indigenous peoples, have gotten together to say this is an area where mining is important, and it's important to take a look at it. Well, Ben, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. It's good to speak with you, too, and I always appreciate it. I've been speaking with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silver Corp trading as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. Once again, I'm Ellis Markton, and I'm a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver Corp., and the company is a paid sponsor of this program. Find Dolly Varden on our website, ellismartonreport.com.
You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.